This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Every year I go to Triumph Baptist Church up in Warrington outside of Manassas there, and Phil Phillips is my good friend. They started out of Fairfax Baptist Temple years ago, and this was their 16th year. And I remember a few years back, Phil said to me, hey, have you ever been to the Holocaust Museum? I said, no, I haven't. He said, uh, I think we ought to go. And so we went. Have, have any of you gotten to go to the Holocaust Museum in D.C.? It was a moving experience. And I remember we offered our wives, you know, you want to go? And they're like, no. Well, and, and believe me, my wife is not a Holocaust denier. She said, I just don't think I could handle it. She's a mercy spiritually. And, and I said, I understand. Um, but we went in. And I remember there was a, one particular display that caused my eyes to well with tears. I, behind glass, piles of shoes. And these were shoes from Jewish people that were sent to, quote, the showers. The showers were the gas chambers. And they were told to disrobe and pile up their shoes. And they were executed. And either near or behind that display, I, I can't remember, there was a quote from a Lutheran pastor by the name of Martin Neimuller. He was a Lutheran, and he vehemently stood up against Adolf Hitler. In fact, it cost him seven years in a concentration camp. Seven years for withstanding the party line of government. And this is what the words say behind that display. First, they came for the socialist. And I did not speak up because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak up because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak up because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. No one left to speak for me. What do you do when you see your country changing before your eyes? It's, our freedoms are eroding faster than a sandy ledge at shore's edge when the tide comes in. You ever watch the waters of the beach, just, the, the sands just erode? It, unbelievable. Since the last time I was with you, COVID, that was kind of a denouement point. That's kind of a crisis point, changing everything in our culture. It was Saul Alinsky who said, never let a serious crisis go to waste. He said, you use a crisis or you create one. And believe me, there is an agenda. In fact, I want to suggest something to you. There is a book worth reading. It was written by Erwin Lutzer, who's the former pastor of the Moody Church, called We Will Not Be Silenced. You ought to read it. We Will Not Be Silenced. And he wrote it during COVID, and he points out that there is an agenda in this country to move us away from the traditional biblical family, from traditional moorings in Christianity. It is an agenda to usher in Marxism. And why am I mentioning all this in, in Sunday school? Folks, politics flow downstream from culture, and culture is influenced by worldview. My job as a preacher is to direct your worldview back to the source of all wisdom. You see, the Bible says the fear of the Lord beginneth, I'm sorry, the, the uh, wisdom is, uh, sorry, the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. And it also says the beginning of knowledge. So it's the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of wisdom. If we don't start with God, we come to absurd conclusions. Have you seen any absurd conclusions in our society in recent? I mean, frankly, what absurd conclusions are we not seeing? And it's because we are abandoning God. In, in his book, 
he points out that um, the whole issue of CRT, uh, critical race theory, it's nothing new. In fact, I know you dealt with that in Virginia. I followed very carefully the whole Loudoun County situation. I think a lot of the country did. But this is nothing new. It goes back to the time of Martin Neumuller. It's what Hitler was pushing, critical theory. Critical theory was get all the classes stirred up, economic classes, so there's class envy and there's division. You know what? That's exactly what's going on. with we, there, Look, does America have racial problems? Sure. Systemic racial problems? Folks, we had made some really good progress. But there is an agenda in the Marxist movement to get everybody stirred up and worked up and don't trust anybody and be at odds with each other. And the whole sad thing about Marxism is you know, allegedly you have these fundamental flaws and there is no remedy for that. Let me tell you, that's not of God. God always has the remedy. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The answer is not class division. It's not racial division. It's unity in one person, Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And I jotted down this, you know, in our culture, we're becoming increasingly secular, decisively intolerant of God. PC, political correctness, is the Quran of modern America. You know what the Quran is, that's the Muslim holy book. The Quran of modern America is political correctness. You defy the woke and you will feel their wrath. In fact, you'll be canceled. But I want to tell you something. God says this in Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. That's exactly what's going on. We don't want to be bound by old-time ethics. We don't want to be controlled by God. Folks, I want to tell you, Jesus said, you'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. Truth frees you. But lies enslave you. Lies chain you. We're going back to Ezekiel, chapter 22. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 23. What's a person to do in a day like this? David said this, Help, Lord, that godly man ceaseth, the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. That's in Psalm 12, 1 and 2. You know, people just talk about emptiness. They, talk, they don't have any solutions. What do we do? Edmund Burke was a British orator. He was one who would speak before Parliament. This is back in the time of the American Revolutionary War. He was in England. And you may know him from a single sentence he wrote in a letter in 1795. All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. So we say, what's a person to do? Well, God's looking for a man. Look at Ezekiel. Chapter 22, and I begin in verse 23. Very interesting, the opening of the chapter, God condemns the people for their having violated every one of his Ten Commandments. So the first half of the chapter, he goes through and he spells out his case. You've, you've violated everything I've told you. And then he says this, verse 23, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, Thou art the land that is not cleansed nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There's a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a, a roaring lion ravening the prey. They've devoured souls. They've taken treasure and precious things. They've made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law, have profaned my holy things. They put no difference between the holy and profane. They have, uh, they, neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. They've hid their eyes from my Sabbaths. I'm profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood. 
to destroy innocent souls, to get this honest gain. Her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity, divining lies into them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery, have vexed the poor and needy, yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out my indignation upon them, I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. You know, Ezekiel was a contemporary of two well-known prophets, Jeremiah and Daniel. They lived about 600 years before Christ. You may remember Ezekiel lived in a time when Judah fell to the Babylonians and was carried off into captivity. Very interesting, Judah and Ezekiel had a common similarity between them, had a similarity between them. That is, they were both priests and prophets. That was unusual. Usually one was either a prophet or a priest. Well, when they were taken out of the land of Judah and into captivity, soon after the temple would be destroyed and the priest would have obviously nowhere to minister. They're in captivity. Ezekiel went off into captivity about age 25. Age 30 is when one could become a priest, so his ministry began five years after he was in captivity. Interesting, as a prophet, he has the responsibility of reminding the people what led to this place. How, how do we get here? That's always good for a country to ask itself. How do we get where we are? What led to this undoing? And his job is to remind them, okay, it's sin that caused us to fall out of favor with God. In fact, Ezekiel is known for elaborate object lessons. Unlike any other preacher, he uses all kinds. You know, I use my sign this morning. I, th I think adults relate to object lessons as well as children. But Ezekiel was always using elaborate object lessons. The primary reason was he's, his job is to remind the children in captivity, one day you're going to go back to your land and you don't want to repeat this. You want to learn the lessons of the past. And I want to remind you that in our country, we are a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And all that's necessary for evil to triumph is good men to do nothing. You know the most important thing you can do as a citizen yeah, vote. Well, voting would be important. And don't give up just because you think, well, I think voting is jaded. This, day. Yeah, keep voting. You ought to contact your representatives. You ought to pray. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and will heal their land. I'll tell you, the most important thing you can do for America is to be rightly related to God yourself. He says, if my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. The tragedy is here in verse 30, the Lord says, I sought for a solitary man. I sought for somebody to stand in the gap, but I found none. The question for the message today is, will you stand in? It's my day for questions, I guess. Are you for sale and now will you stand in? Stand in, what do you mean? That's what we're going to look at. Let me start with the corruption that prevailed. The corruption that prevailed, this is in verses uh, 23 to 29. And let's go back and take a look at it. I don't even have to alliterate my outline. Uh, don't have to start with all the same letter. The Lord already did that. Notice he says in verse 24, the land is not rained upon. Why? God turned off the rain. There's drought. You know why there's drought? You turn away from me, I'll turn off the heavens. God said that in Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 and 17. You turn away to false gods, I'm going to bring calamity. Any, any idea why we're in so much trouble financially? Any idea why, you know, tornadoes are intensifying? Any idea why, you know, we go from drought to like a thousand-year rainstorm in Florida a couple weeks ago, 25 inches of rain? Could it have anything to do with the people turning their ear away from God? 
Sure is a question we ought to entertain, isn't it? Here's why God says in verse 25, there's conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof. Now, I circled the word prophets. Where is the corruption? It starts with the prophets. Okay, you know, Israel and the church are separate entities. I don't believe the church replaced Israel. I am dispensational in my theology. I believe that God has called a people called Israel. They are his chosen people. His prophetic fulfillment runs through the nation of Israel. That's why Satan so adamantly goes after Israel. And God says, then that bless thee, I will bless him that curse thee, I will curse. There are some similarities between Old Testament Israel and the church. They are not interchangeable, but there are some similarities. The Old Testament, they had priests. They worked at the temple or the tabernacle. And they had prophets. The prophets were the ones traveling the land and, and proclaiming, thus saith the Lord. Uh, the pastor would be a lot like the priest of the Old Testament in that he's assigned to the house of God. He's on location. The prophet would be like an evangelist. He's going all over and preaching, and his, his burden is the burden of the Lord. He's got specific burdens on his heart. You can probably figure out evangelists pretty much preach their burden, what's going on in their heart from the Word of God. Okay, So there's, that's analogous. Okay, there's a, there's a comparison there. Well, it grieves me to say that the first point of contention God has with the land of Judah, corruption had spread to the prophets. These are the evangelists of the day. These guys are corrupt. Notice what he says about them. Their prophets are like a lion ravening the prey. Uh, caught a little documentary this week called One Year in the World, or in the History of the World. It was on Fox Business, and I was watching a lion taking down, a, or a pack of lions, herd of lions taking down an elephant, or a pride of lions, okay, I'll get it right. Pride of lions taking down an elephant, and I'll tell you, it was gory. Have you ever seen video of a lion ravening its prey? Prophets should not be devouring people and destroying them. Well, notice what he says. They've devoured souls. They've taken the treasure and precious things. Look, I grew up in a church where there was false theology. I grew up in a church that had turned to modernism. We went every Sunday, and our, our ministers did never preach the Bible. They, they taught a false gospel. You know, do enough good works, and hopefully your good works will outweigh your bad works, and hopefully you get to heaven. Folks, those are lies. And I want to tell you, there are countless churches telling lies. Just because somebody claims to be Christian doesn't mean they are. That's why we're to evaluate everything based on what God said. Not what we think, what God says. That's why we need the Bible. That's why we have a settled source called Scripture. So these guys are devouring souls. They're, they're taking treasure and precious things. They've made many widows in the midst thereof. What does that mean? Were they killing off the husbands? No, they personally were not, but the problem is their teaching is leading to husbands dying. Meaning, the false prophets were telling people, no, no, you're not going to fall to the Babylonians. We're going to be fine. And God told them, you're going to go into captivity. It's coming. But the false prophets, no. So these men went to fight, and they died because they believe lies. My dad realized after years of being in a church that was not preaching the Bible, what are we doing in this church my parents had been part of the same denomination for 37 years. They've never told us the truth. They don't preach the Bible. My dad's co-worker led him to Christ, and my dad said, why isn't my church telling me this? And finally, dad said, we're leaving this church. We're going to find somewhere they preach the Bible. For four years, we looked around within our own denomination in New Jersey. We didn't find any preaching the Bible. They may have been out there, but we didn't find any. Finally, he said, we're going to go somewhere they preach the Bible. I'll never forget the day we visited Open Bible Baptist Church in Williamstown, New Jersey. They ran about 1,000 people at the time. It was the only time I would go there until later I would preach there as an evangelist. 
But that day was significant. My dad took us to church, and uh, we sat. They had like two long sections, about 1,000 people on a Sunday. We sat about midway back on the aisle. My dad's six foot seven, so he wanted an aisle seat. And I remember the pastor got up. He was wearing a suit and tie like I am, not the robe that I was used to with a backward collar. And he had a Bible, and he loosened his tie, and he said, open your Bibles with me. And everybody starts turning pages. Have you ever heard when 1,000 people are sorting for a place in Scripture? It makes quite a rustling noise. And my sisters were just little kids. They said, Mom, Dad, is it raining? What's that noise? And my dad is embarrassed. He held his head like this. And he realized we'd never heard the Bible being opened in church. I mean, let me just tell you, if you're going to a church where they don't open the Bible in church, it's time to tra- change churches. And that afternoon, my dad realized these these kids have never heard the gospel. He came into my room with his Bible, and he said, Richie, sit down, I want to talk to you. And when your dad, hey, guys, when your dad comes in your room with the Bible in hand, and he says, I want to talk to you, what would you be thinking? Dun, 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 dun. I've done something wrong, right? And then I was sure, because he said, uh, Richie, you know, we heard the pastor talking today. He said, I've got to ask you a question. Have you ever sinned? I knew I was busted for something. I had no idea what I'd done. I said, yes, sir. He said, you know what sin is? Uh, yeah, Dad, like murder and stealing. Yeah, well, yes, those are sins. Can you think of things you've done that are wrong? I've lied. I've talked back to you and Mom. I've gotten fights with my sisters. I've said bad words. I've even used God's name like a cuss word. I knew all that was bad, but I'd never thought about it as sin against God before. And I'll tell you what, guys, I felt so convicted. I'm only 10 years old at the time. My dad said, that's why I want to talk to you. And he walked me through John 3. Pastor, I don't think my dad even knew the Romans road back then. I, but he knew John 3, you must be born again. And he walked me through, and I, hey, listen, it's the first time I ever heard John 3, 16 in my life. Ten years old. Going to church in America every week of my life. Never heard John 3, 16. Should never have happened. But thank God my dad said, you know what? Ultimately, my kid's spiritual responsibility falls on me. And I'm going to tell him. And my dad led me to Christ that day. Amen. And like Chris did, I wrote it down in the Bible when I uh, trusted the Lord. May, uh, sorry, February uh, tw- uh, 12, 1977. I was 10 years old. I'll, I'm 56. I'll save you the math, okay? So I was 10 years old when I trusted Christ as Savior. And I will tell you, it is the most important day of my life. The sad thing is, I sat under ministers every week who could have been telling me this. But just like the prophets... They're devouring souls and taking precious things. In fact, drop down to verse 28. Also mentions the prophets. I circled it again here. Her prophets circled that, have daubed them with untempered mortar. What does that mean? My dad was a general contractor, and I remember sometimes we would do um, projects that would necessitate some cement, and so we had a big, you know, one of those mixers, a big barrel that had a belt that would drive it, and you'd dump in the cement mix with some water and some sand. But then there was a very important ingredient, lime. Lime would help harden it up. Well, back then, they would uh, take bricks or stones. This is still done in Israel and Syria today. They'll build houses out of small river stones or whatever, and they'll put them together with a type of mortar. But in order to create a nice clean seam, they would use some untempered mortar. Untempered mortar was mortar that was, was not made with slaked lime. Instead, they would put clay in it. It'd be a lot like caulk. It would make a nice smooth seam but it didn't have any real stability to it. So if you leaned up against a wall that was only put together with untempered mortar, what would happen to the wall? It would fall over. It didn't have any strength to it. These prophets are telling the people, thus saith the Lord, but there's no 
there's no rigidity to it. There's no authority to it. They were not, in fact, he goes on, notice what he says it. They've daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies to them, saying, thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. You ever hear people on TV, they, they say one thing, and you say, that's not what the Bible says. I remember watching a guy when I was a teenager, and I wasn't even in a good church at that point, but he said, if you will send me one thin dime, I will pray over it for your financial prosperity. Write to our ministry right now, and we will send you our anointed prayer cloth. You put it across your lap, brother or sister, and you reach out and touch that television set, and God will bless you financially. And I'm thought, give me a break. <laughs> I was just a teenager. I knew the guy was a charlatan. But apparently a lot of people bought into it because they were sending the guy money. More than just one thin dime, I'll tell you that. Just like these prophets. The Lord said to me, when the Lord had not spoken. Let me tell you, your pastor did not invite a guest into the pulpit this week for this preacher to entertain you or simply to inspire you. My job is to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. That's, that's why you're seeing we walk verse by verse. And By the way, I, I preach textually. I don't think you always have to go every single verse, but, but we're going back to the authority of the word because it's not what I think or what you think that matters. It's what God says. That's why we're doing this. So the prophets have profaned themselves. Notice that seeing vanity. In Samuel's day, a prophet was called a seer. He would see a vision from God and relate it to the people. What's vanity mean? Emptiness, fluff, nothing. Okay, so the prophets are corrupt. Back up to verse number 26. There's another group he mentions, the corruption that prevailed, not only the prophets, but then the priests. Her priests have violated my law. They've profaned my holy things. They've put no difference between the holy and profane. The priests were the people to be teaching the ordinance of God, the law of God, the statutes of God. They were in charge of the sacrifices in the temple. He said, they're not making a distinction between holy and profane. By the word profane, what's that mean? Um, guys, what kind of language is profane language? If it's profane, it's what? Good or bad? Bad. bad. Profane language, we usually think of cuss words, right? Profane means just common. So in other words, taking God's name in vain is not just hooking God's name up with a four-letter word, God blank you. It's just saying his name without respect. People say all the time, oh my, and then they'll say God. It's amazing, people that don't believe his God, uh, in God use his name more than people who do believe in him. I, I, occasionally I've been playing golf and I'll see some guy miss a putt and say, Jesus Christ. I've never seen a dude miss a putt and say, holy Buddha. Never seen that happen. It's always Jesus. Why? Because Satan wants them to treat that name with disdain. Hey, listen, gang, if you text OMG, you know what that really means? Oh, my God. That's not using his name reverently. Hey, by the way, maybe this is just a little hobby horse of mine. I don't know, but for what it's worth, sometimes I pray with people, and I'm a little put off when I hear people just use God's name um, thoughtlessly. Dear God, we thank you, Heavenly Father, for this wonderful day, Almighty Father, Most High God. We thank you, Jesus, for, you know, if I talk to a pastor like this, and let's say we're just talking to his friends, say, Brother Mike, you know, it's really nice of you to bring me here, Mike, and I, I, you and Renee are so nice, Mike, and he'd be like, Rich, okay. Beware of just using God's name like a sanctified um. Yep. Instead of saying um, we just throw Jesus in there. Be, be reverent of that name. Profane can also be, you know, you have to be discreet about talking of sexual matters or 
intimate matters or bodily functions. You know, have you taught your kids discretion? Like, no, we don't use that word. Okay, so profane is just using things discreetly, reverently. He said, my priests have not made any distinction between the holy and profane. So folks, that brings the question, where are churches today teaching the holiness of God? There's been a reaction because for so long, um, separation was deemed, well, you know, it's, it's your standards. Well, I want to tell you, standards in themselves are not bad. Standards are an application of principles. But what happened is, well, we grew up in strict fundamentalism, you know, legalism, and so, you know, women didn't wear this, and we didn't do that, and we didn't go there, and so, so what happens? We swing the pendulum and just go the other way. You know, God did say, for instance, let women be adorned in modest apparel. God did say, be a holy, for I am holy. God did say the head of every man is Christ, as well as the head of the woman is the man. And he also said the head of Christ is God, which is another subject for another day this week. But he says, look, folks, I want you to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. All that's in the world, lust of flesh, lust of eyes, pride of life, not of the Father, it's of the world. So be ye holy, for I am holy. Where's the separation unto godliness? It wasn't in the prophets, it wasn't in the priests, but then I want you to see this, it wasn't in the princes either. Go back to verse 27. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey. Okay, who are the princes? They're the government officials. Y'all have never heard of corruption in government, have you? To shed blood, to destroy souls, to get dishonest gain. Shed blood. I am... I am beside myself at a culture that, that, wants, that is up in arms about the fact that a woman might be restricted from destroying the life of her own baby. What are we thinking? It is a woman's fundamental right to what? Massacre her child? You know, there are decisions that led to that life being expected. Maybe we need to back up to the decisions made before it comes to that point. We have got a government whose official policy now is death. What are we thinking? Well, you're attacking people in politics. Yeah, you're right. Because if you're going to defy God, then I'm not going to stand with you. And I will tell you something. This whole idea that, well, you know, a woman's got a right to choose. A baby's got a right to live. And if we don't protect the sanctity of life, what are we? They're destroying souls, getting dishonest gain. You don't know any politicians who benefit off of insider trading or anything like that, do you? Nothing new under the sun. Well, let me get off that and go back to the text, all right? I'm meddling now. Uh, verse 29, the people, well, I'm actually not meddling because it's in the text, but let me stay on track. Verse 29, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery, have vexed the poor and needy, they've oppressed the stranger wrongfully. Who's a stranger? Immigrants to your country. The cat's out of the bag. I heard one of them say it this week. Look, we need an open southern border because who's going to cook our food and clean our houses and watch our children? How about you do it? But see, the whole idea is they're so caught up in, quote, the American dream, making money, we got to have daycare for our kids and farmers to work in the field. And here's the problem. We abort all our children. We don't have enough people to do that. So we just open the southern border and we let them come in, and now we have our voting block, and we got our working class. What are we thinking? And do you see, folks, 
some of you will go out of here like, oh man, he was all on politics today. I'm all over politics because politics just flows downstream from culture and culture is influenced by worldview and the problem is we've abandoned a biblical worldview. That's why we're reaping what we are right now. So we've got to go back and say, okay, if this is really government of the people, by the people, for the people, what do we do about this? Well, we get back to the authority of God's word. You say, well, I might not be able to touch society, but I want to tell you something. You can make an impact on your children and their children and your family and your church, and your church can make an impact on your community, and what if every church that embraces the Bible as the truth would live as the Bible is the truth? So that's the corruption that prevailed. The people, the priests, the princes, the prophets, a whole lot of them is corrupt. Sound like anything you heard today? But thankfully, thankfully, God's not done. Go to verse 30. I want you to see not only the corruption that prevailed, but then number two is the call that failed. The call that failed. I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy, but I found none. Now what does hedge mean? In ancient times, they would actually grow hedgerows, vegetation hedgerows, to impede the advance of an army. So they'd grow these thick, burly hedges. In fact, if any of you have ever been either to the UK or somewhere like New Zealand, you'll see hedgerows that are grown up way tall, and they're to prevent not only animals from wandering from field to field, but prevent wind erosion and soil erosion. Well, they used to build these hedges to stop an advancing army. It is awfully tough to go through a thorny, gnarly hedge, right? So they figured out you dip these arrows in oil and you fire them into the hedge and you can burn a gap in the hedge. Later, they started building hedges out of more solid things. You remember during the Revolutionary War, they used to have these picket fences or these um, pole fences and they'd, they'd sharpen them and point them out and it's awfully hard for the Hessians to climb over those, right? And, and then later, like Civil War times and all, they'd, they'd have uh, stone fences. In fact, even medieval times. Remember, they'd build these fortresses and they'd have rock walls. Of course, then came catapults and, you know, boom, throw a boulder in there, blow a gap in what was called the hedge. And you've seen the depictions. The wall is breached. The wall is breached. And all of a sudden, all the soldiers are coming there. So what do they do in the immediacy of the moment? Somebody's got to stand in the gap. And you've seen the depictions. Some guy with arrows or sword or some brave soul some expendable soul going to stand in the gap. I wondered why did he say I sought for a man but I found none. I mean there was Daniel, there was Ezekiel, there's Jeremiah. Well see the idea is when it comes to a hedge it's next man up. One guy can't do it by himself. He said I've been down the list and now I'm finding none. I remember when I was a teenager hearing evangelist Tom Farrell preach from that. Farrell was one of my favorite preachers and I'm, I'm Looking forward to fellowship with him now that he's in heaven when I, in due time. Not today, but in due time. I remember him preaching a message called God's Manhunt. Made an impact on me when I was a teenager. I'd already surrendered to God. But he said, young people, do you realize I, I get to go to the foreign mission field? I'm with missionaries who say, Tom, there's this tribe and there's this people and there's this group and, and they just, they're open to somebody coming and telling them, but we don't have anybody to send them. I remember hearing a guy one time, he was with um, Baptist Mid-Mission. He was in Peru. And he said, we had taken a trip with, I think it was a dozen missionaries. We went to a tribe that had never been reached. 
it, it took us days, and I, I'll screw up the details, but he said it was like uh, four days by canoe, another couple of days on foot. It took us a week to get to these people. He said, but this was a tribe of 20,000 people. Never heard the gospel. He said, we set up a, a meeting place there, and we preached the gospel almost round the clock. All the daylight hours, different ones, taking turns. Everybody in the village was coming out to hear it. They were so receptive, there were people coming to Christ in droves. He said, at the end of our time there, the tribal chief came to us pleading, please stay and tell my people about God. He said he went to each of the pastors. He said, I had the unfortunate position of being the last one in the line. And every one of us were already working with different people groups. And he finally came to me, and now he's in desperation. He said, brother, if you will stay and tell my people about God, we will build you a house. We will do all your hunting. We just need a teacher. This man said, sir, I'm sorry. He said, I cannot. He said, I'm already working with such and such a tribe. He said, and not only that, it's up in the mountains. He said, I have, and he had multiple problems like asthma and some other things, diabetes and whatever. He said, I, I could not live long term in the jungle. I wouldn't survive. And he said, even if I wanted to. He said, but as a gift to us, they had made a, a carved canoe that was a re replica of the canoes that had brought us upriver to them. And I picked it up and I said, chief, if you'll let me go home, I will hold this up before the people of my home country and I will tell them there's a tribe of 20,000 people in Peru begging for somebody to come and tell us. They'll cook your food. They'll make your house. You just tell them about Jesus. And as he was speaking, he held up that canoe. He said, young people, and I, I, again, I think, it, I'm, I think I'm saying this accurately. It was something like three years ago that was and his tears are coming down this missionary's face. He said, as far as I know, no one has yet gone to tell them about Jesus. Now, folks, that was 20-some years ago. I don't know where all that went, but I'm telling you that story to say, how shall they hear without a preacher? You know, if the Wagars don't go to Chuk, who's going to tell them? Well, there are other people. Other people die off. Other people get too old to stay. Where do we get missionaries? Well, you know, Bible colleges. Where do Bible colleges get those kids? Churches. Where do churches get those kids? Families. Where do families get them? Yours. Yet how many of us are even giving thought to, you think God might want my child in ministry? Woodrow Kroll wrote a fascinating book called The Vanishing Ministry. There's a new update of it, The Vanishing Ministry in the 21st Century. And he said there is a desperate need for full-time Christian workers. Teens, let me say this. I'm not wanting to put undue pressure on you. Nobody should go in the ministry because, well, you know, our pastor or evangelist told us, like, if you're not a pastor or you're not a pastor's wife, you're not a Christian school teacher, you're failing God. No one here is saying that. You might be, my dad surrendered to full-time ministry. He went to PCC when I did. He got a Bible degree and he ended up as a missionary to Home Depot. He worked at Home Depot. God never called my dad to be a preacher. The key was my dad was willing and all three of us kids ended up in full-time ministry, interestingly. And my dad helped Ron Comfort start Ambassador Baptist College. My dad was a builder, and he helped do the original building at the Shelby campus there. My dad was never called to ministry. But here's the thing. The decision you guys make shouldn't be your own. It should be God's. Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, God gave me piano ability. I think he wants me to be a pianist. Maybe or maybe not. How about you ask him? And by the way, that's true for all of us, not just the kids. I'm not just singling out the kids. But these guys are at an age where they're deciding what are they going to do with their life. Hey, let me ask you this. Have you decided what you're going to do with your life? Yeah, I decided. How about God? 
I was in a little church in Osawatomie, Kansas one time, and the pastor said, I want you to meet the best soul winner in my church, 92-year-old Ira, I-R-A. His name was Ira. He said, this man led a dozen people to the Lord in the last year or so. This guy is just faithful witnessing. He said, oh, and recently his daughter went as a rookie missionary. The man's 92. I'm thinking, how old's his daughter? They showed me the prayer card. She was 65 years old. She went as a rookie missionary. I said, tell me about her. She was married, but her husband died early. She was left as a widow at 60. She said, you know, I'd always thought about being a missionary. My husband didn't really have the health to do that, but she said, I'm healthy. She went off to a four-year Bible college, got a degree, graduated at age 64, and at age 65 went off to the mission field, the Philippines, as a rookie missionary at age 65. She's crazy. She was following God. He's looking for somebody. Would he find that somebody in you? The call that failed, and then finally I want you to see this, the chastening that assailed. To assail is to lay siege to. It's a military term. The chastening that assailed, verse 31, therefore have I poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I on their heads, saith the Lord God. He says, I looked for somebody, I found so I had no option but to bring judgment. I don't know about you, but I really don't want to see America get judged. By the way, let me be utterly transparent. People ask me, do you think we can see revival in our day? Absolutely. So like, what do you think about that Asbury thing? Okay, let me just say a word because you'll probably want to know. I think there's a sense in this country of something's desperately wrong. Only God is the answer. Here's the issue with revival. If it's not rooted in the truth of God, it's not going to last long. By their fruits you should know them. I'm not the judge of the hearts of those people. I don't know what individual hearts are like. I will say this. If we try to have God on our terms, we're not going to have revival. But if we're willing to come to God on his terms, we can have revival. I'm encouraged that there are people at places like Asbury, uh, Cedarville, other places that they're thinking, man, we desperately need to work with God. That's a good thing. Let's pray that such a spirit will travel in our country. If we're going to see real revival, we've got to come back to the authority of God and his word. So you might sit, well, it's easy to sit in condemnation. Well, I don't think that's of God. How about you, instead of being judged, say, Lord, could you do that work right here in me? And I will tell you something. We're going to have these prayer meetings this week. We don't just have pre-service prayer meetings for the fun of it. We're having pre-service prayer meetings to get a hold of the Lord. And I, I would beg you, if you can come, please do. I realize some of you cannot. I, I know that. I know you would if you could. But some of us could. We just don't think, well, it's not for me. It's for you. You're his people. And I'd urge you to come. And as, as we seek God during this time, let me close in Isaiah 59. He says, I sought for man, I found none, therefore I brought judgment. It, it doesn't have to be that way. Go to Isaiah 59. Do you think we could have revival in our day? I absolutely do. Could we even have a nationwide revival? You say, well, we're in the end times, brother. Yeah, I believe we're closer to Jesus coming than we've ever been. I, I fully expect the Lord to come before my youngest daughter is old enough to get married. I'm counting on it. But... Uh, that doesn't mean it's true, okay? But I, 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 I mean, I, I heard prophecy, eschatology, preaching in the 70s too and think, I can't believe he's not come yet. No, the Lord will come and will not tarry. We sometimes say, well, if the Lord tarries, he's not tarrying, he has it on his calendar. He's merciful because he's letting derelicts come to Christ. But, but I will tell you, what if, what if we had revival? Wouldn't that mess up eschatology? No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. Let me, let me tell you, if America turned in mass to Christ, that doesn't change the world at large, sadly. This is just a 
conjecture on my part, but some have said, why do you think America's not in prophecy? You think we get destroyed? Yeah, maybe, maybe. But I'll tell you what, if we had revival right now, there would be a good portion of Americans that would be raptured. Well, you're not saying there are millions of Christians. Well, there may be millions. They may be kind of like Lot, not much of a testimony, but they have believed in salvation by grace. And think of this. I once read that there was something like... um, 80 million evangelicals in this country. Well, out of 330 million, that'd be a lot. I, you think there are that many Christians? I doubt it, I doubt it. But, but, but what if 10% of that? What if there were 8 million Christians? I don't know, let me just throw out a random number. What if 8 million people were suddenly raptured out of this society? This country would be crippled. People in positions of power and influence, people with money, people that... Oh, by the way, Christians are often the ones who are not in debt, you know, so... Uh, and, and by the way, when those who are in debt, um, who's going to pay their debts off? Now they're gone. Our country would be crippled economically overnight from such a catastrophe. And who becomes the world power? Well, Europe wouldn't have real big impact from the rapture. Sad to say, but they really wouldn't. By default, Europe could become the world power. I'm not telling you I know that for sure from the Bible. I'm just telling you the rapture comes, everything changes in this country question is, are you ready? So even if we had nationwide revival, that's not changing the big scheme of things. I'm really praying. You look at the book of Judges. Anytime there was any semblance of repentance, God would show mercy. Okay? So look at these verses, um, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hands not shorten that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. He says, it's not that I'm deaf. It's not that my hand's too short to save. I can save. But then look at verse 16. He saw that there was no man. Here's here's the problem again, no man. And he wondered that there was no what? Intercessor. A person who intercedes does what? He petitions on behalf of another. Yeah, nobody to pray. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. His right hand, uh, sorry, his righteousness rather, it sustained him. I'm gonna finish with this as we round out our Sunday school time. I, I was given a, an account, a true account called The Christian Drummer Boy. Came out of a book published in 1894 called Touching Incidents and Remarkable Answers to Prayer. Listen to this. Sometimes we think, well, what good could I do? The writer says, I was a surgeon in the United States Army during the Civil War. After the Battle of Gettysburg, there were hundreds of wounded soldiers in my hospital. Many were wounded so severely that a leg or an arm or sometimes both needed to be amputated. One of these was a boy who had only been in the service for three months. Since he was too young to be a soldier, he had enlisted as a drummer. When my assistants came to give him chloroform before the amputation, he turned his head and refused it. When they told him it was the doctor's orders, he said, send the doctor to me. I came to his bedside and said, young man, why do you refuse the chloroform? When I found you on the battlefield, you were so far gone, I almost didn't bother to pick you up. But when you opened those large blue eyes, it occurred to me that you had a a mother somewhere who might be thinking about you at that very moment. I didn't want you to die in the field, so I brought you here to the hospital. But you've lost too much blood. You're just too weak to live without an operation, without chloroform. You better let me give you some. He laid his hand on mine, looked me in the face, and said, Doctor... One Sunday afternoon when I was nine and a half years old, I gave my heart to Christ. I learned to trust him then, and I've been trusting him ever since. 
I know I can trust him now. He's my strength. He will support me while you amputate my arm and leg. I asked him if he would at least let me give him a little brandy. He looked at me and said, Doctor, when I was about five years old, my mother knelt by my side with her arms around me and said, Charlie, I am praying to Jesus that you will never take even one drink of alcohol. Your father died a drunkard, and I've asked God to use you to warn people against the dangers of drinking and to encourage them to love and serve the Lord. I'm now 17 years old, he said. I have never had anything stronger than tea or coffee. There's a very good chance I'm about to die and to go into the presence of my God. Would you send me there with brandy on my breath? I'll never forget the look that boy gave me. At that time, I hated Jesus, but I respected that boy's loyalty to his Savior. When I saw how he loved and trusted him to the very end, something deeply touched my heart. I did for that boy something I had never done for any other soldier. I asked him if he wanted to see his chaplain. Chaplain R, last name, initial, uh, knew the boy well, having seen him frequently at the tent prayer meetings. Taking his hand, he said, Charlie, I'm really sorry to see you like this. Oh, I'm all right, Charlie responded. The doctor offered me chloroform, but I told him I didn't want any. Then he wanted to give me brandy, which I didn't want either. So, so if my Savior calls me, I can go to him in my right mind. Well, you might not die, Charlie, said the chaplain. But if the Lord does call you home, is there anything I can do for you after you're gone? Yes, chaplain. Please reach under my pillow. Take my little Bible. My mother's address is inside. Please send my Bible to her. Write a letter for me. Tell her that since I left home, I have never let a single day pass, no matter if we were on the march, on the battlefield, or in the hospital, without reading a portion of God's word and daily praying that God would bless her. <laughs> Is there anything else I can do for you, son? Yes. Please write a letter to my Sunday school teacher in Brooklyn, New York. Tell him I've never forgotten his encouragement, his good advice, and many prayers for me. They've helped me and comforted me through all the dangers of battle. And now in my dying hour, I thank the Lord for my dear old teacher. And I'm asking God to bless him and strengthen him. That's all. Then turning to me, he said, I'm ready, doctor. I promise. I won't even groan while you take off my arm and leg if you don't offer me chloroform. I promise. But I didn't have the courage to take the knife in my hand without first going to the next room and taking a little brandy myself. While cutting through the flesh, Charlie kept his promise. He never groaned. But when I took the saw to separate the bone, that lad took the corner of his pillow in his mouth, and all I could hear him whisper was, Oh, Jesus, blessed Jesus, stand by me now. He kept his word. He never groaned. I couldn't sleep that night. Whichever way I tossed and turned, I saw those soft blue eyes, and when I closed my own eyes, I heard the words, Blessed Jesus, stand by me now, it kept ringing in my ears. A little after midnight, I finally left my bed and visited the hospital, a thing that I never did before unless it was an emergency. I had such a strange and strong desire to see that boy. When I got there, an orderly told me that 16 of the badly wounded soldiers had died. Was Charlie Colson one of them, I asked? Oh, oh, no, sir. He is sleeping soundly as a baby. When I came to his bed, one of the nurses said that about 9 o'clock, two members of the YMCA came through the hospital to read and sing a hymn. Chaplain R. was with them, and when he knelt by Charlie's bed, he offered up a fervent, soul-stirring prayer. And then, while they were on their knees, they sang one of the sweetest of all hymns, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Charlie sang with them, too. I couldn't understand how that boy, who was in such horrible pain, could sing. Five days after I performed the operation, Charlie sent for me, and it was from him that I heard my first gospel sermon. Doctor, he said, my time's come. 
I don't expect to see another sunrise. I want to thank you with all my heart for your kindness to me. I know you're Jewish and that you don't believe in Jesus, but I, I, want, I want you to stay with me. I want you to see me die trusting my Savior to the last moment of my life. I tried to stay, but I, I just couldn't. I didn't have the courage to stand by and see a Christian boy rejoicing in the love of that Jesus who I hated. So I hurriedly left the room. About 20 minutes later, an orderly came and found me sitting in my office with my, heads, my uh, hands covering my face. He told me Charlie wanted to see me. Oh, I, I've just seen him, I answered. I can't see him again. But doctor, he says you must come once more before he dies. So I made up my mind to go to Charlie, say an endearing word, and let him die. However, I was determined that nothing that he could say to me would influence me in the least bit so far as his Jesus was concerned. When he entered the hospital, I saw he was sinking fast, so I sat down by his bed, asked me to take his hand. He said, Doctor, I love you because you're a Jew. The best friend I found in this whole world was a Jew. I asked him who that was. He said, Jesus Christ, and I want to introduce you to him before I die. Will you promise me, doctor, that what I'm about to say to you, you'll never forget? I promised. He said, five days ago, while you amputated my arm and leg, I prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ and asked him to make his love known to you. Those words went deep into my heart. I couldn't understand how when I was causing him the most intense pain that he would forget all about himself and think about my unconverted soul. All I could say to him was, well, well, dear boy, you'll you'll soon be all right. With these words, I left him, and 12 minutes later, he fell asleep, safe in the arms of Jesus. Hundreds of soldiers died during that war, but I only followed one to the grave. That was Charlie Colson. I rode three miles to see him buried in an, uh, in an officer's, I'm sorry, I rode three miles to see him buried. I had him dressed in a new uniform and placed in an officer's coffin with a U.S. flag draped over it. That boy's dying words made a deep impression on me. I was rich at the time so far as money was concerned, but I would have given every penny I owned if I could have felt toward Christ like Charlie did. But that feeling can't be bought with money. Alas, I soon forgot all about my Christian soldier's little sermon, but I couldn't forget that boy himself. Looking back now, I know I was under deep conviction of sin at the time, but for nearly 10 years I fought against Christ with all the hatred I had until finally... That that dear boy's prayer was answered. I surrendered my life to the love of Jesus. About a year and a half after my conversion, I went to a prayer meeting one evening in Brooklyn. It's one of those prayer meetings where Christians testify about the loving kindness of God. After several had spoken, an elderly lady stood up and she said, Dear friends, this may be the last time I have a chance to publicly share how good the Lord's been to me. My doctor told me yesterday that my right lung is nearly gone and my left lung is failing fast. So at best, I only have a short time to be with you. But what is left of me belongs to Jesus. It's a great joy to know I'll soon meet my son with Jesus in heaven. Charlie was not only a soldier for his country, but a soldier for Christ He was wounded at the Battle of Gettysburg. He was cared for by a Jewish doctor who amputated his arm and leg. He he died five days after that operation. The chaplain of the regiment wrote me a letter. He sent me my boy's Bible. 
I, I was told that in his dying hour, my Charlie sent for that Jewish doctor. He said, Doctor, before I die, I wish to tell you that five days ago, while you amputated my arm and leg, I prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ for you. As I heard that lady speak, I, I couldn't sit still. I left my seat. I raced across the room, taking her by the hand. I said, God bless you, my dear sister. Your boy's prayers have been heard and answered. I am the Jewish doctor that Charlie prayed for, and his Savior is now my Savior. The love of Jesus has won my soul. Okay, think of this. 17-year-old boy, too young to enlist as a soldier, so he goes in as a drummer. He lasts three months. Arm cut off, leg cut off. You think, what a waste! What a testimony. Did you guys hear that? He wrote his mom and said, or had the chaplain write and say, every day I read my Bible, even when we're in battle, even in the hospital. Tell my Sunday school teacher I prayed for him every day. No wonder this guy had such an influence. The kid walked with God. And who else would be able to reach a hard-hearted Jewish doctor but a boy like that? There's some soul out there that you might reach that no one else is going to reach. Will you stand in? Father, thank you for the time we've had. I pray that you'll prep us for this week. I think, I think more than ever we realize, boy, we are in desperate need of the intervention of heaven. Please, you promised if we, your people, called by your name, humble ourselves. If we pray, we seek your face, if we turn from our wicked ways, you'll hear. You'll not only hear from heaven, you'll not only forgive our sin, you'll heal our land. Would you do a work in us so you can do a work in our land? I'm asking it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.